0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm your host, Marva Hinton. Today we're coming to you from the Key West Literary Seminar, and our guest is Jim Shepard. He's the author of several award-winning novels and short story collections, and his latest work is The Book of Aaron, a novel set in the Warsaw Ghetto during World War II. Thanks so much for joining us, Jim.
1: Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for asking me.
0: Why did you decide to write about the Holocaust? I mean, it's such a big topic, and everybody has such strong
1: emotions about it. I actually didn't decide to write about it. If I were deciding on the basis of topics, I would have stayed away from it. Um, but because I write about such a weird array of things, um, people often send me suggestions. And one old student sent me a suggestion. Uh, why, why have I never—or just actually, it wasn't even a suggestion. He was just wondering why I had never written about Janusz Korczak. Um, since that seemed like such an obvious topic for somebody like myself. And uh, Korczak was an educational reformer and uh, a, a sort of a, an amazing cultural figure in Poland who ended up giving his life for um, his children. Um, when, when he was uh, running an orphanage in the Warsaw Ghetto, the Germans offered him uh, the option of staying behind when they were going to ship his children out to Treblinka, which everybody knew was a death camp at that point. And he said, no, if my children are going, I'm going with them. And so he became, even though he was a big celebrity before that, uh, as a, a children's advocate and an t- educational reformer, he became an even more uh, famous and, and saintly and revered figure in Poland. Um, and I had always... I wrote my student back and told him I' had always resisted writing about figures like that because I've always been wary about writing about saintly figures because it seems to me I'm not that interested in hagiography. I'm not interested in, uh, I'm interested in fiction that helps us sort of dismantle and reassemble our sense of ourselves. But I'm also the kind of odd person who actually owns Korchak's ghetto diary. and so I went and reread it and was struck by um, how many children in that orphanage, in fact, didn't want to be in that orphanage were miserable in that orphanage and the idea of being um, absolutely unable to appreciate somebody amazing who's saving your life was a was a, an emotional position that did resonate with me and um, and it also seemed to me a great way of getting at a saintly figure was to sort of say uh, what about if that figure is perceived by a, a, a very innocent but um, skeptical uh, young person who's just observing them as an as a almost complete mystery. What makes somebody want to be like this so saintly? Um, and that got me writing um, that child, the child's voice. It got me researching more Polish and Jewish children's voices from the 30s. And I just started thinking, I really want to write this boy's story. And was a w- pretty far into, maybe 20 or 30 pages into it, when I thought, are you really going to write a Holocaust story? And the answer, unfortunately, was yes, <laughs> I was.
0: Well, as you mentioned, that boy's voice. I mean, the book of Aaron is told through the perspective of a boy who is nine when the novel opens. And life is difficult for him and his family before the war even begins. I mean, he's sickly. He's not particularly a good student. He struggles to make friends. He disappoints his father. Why did you decide to tell the story through his eyes?
1: I wanted, um, in some ways, there's a couple of reasons. One is, Choosing a young person's voice allowed me to sort of control the reader's sense that there's this hubristic project of telling the whole story of the whole, not only the the Holocaust, but just the Warsaw Ghetto. And I didn't want to uh, pretend that, that I was going to be offering a comprehensive account of that. And so when you limit yourself to one point of view and one child's story, you in some ways... Um, let the reader know this is just going to be one small corner. It also allows you to take the six million and say, "I'm going to I'm going to remind you that e- each one of the six million was one person at one point." Um, and and um, it also, uh, by by choosing a young person's voice, um, um, allows me to, uh, in some ways, um, get into the project a little more um, quickly because the that that overlap between myself and a miserable young person is is still pretty vivid for me and so um, it also allowed me in some ways to combat one of the other aspects of um, that archetype that's starting to be um, commonplace which is well everything was wonderful in Edenic until the Germans came and and to sort of remind people that the Poles had an awful awful position in Jew in uh, in uh, Poland uh, the Jews had an awful position in, in, in Poland before uh, the Germans even arrived for the most part they weren't allowed to uh, work in most occupations, most of them lived in grinding poverty and um, one of the accounts I came across when I was reading first person accounts uh, was a diary in which the mother said and now the Germans have invaded, what else could go wrong you know, and that attitude which was sort of like of course given my luck the Germans would invade Um, that attitude seems one that I didn't see in a lot of other Holocaust texts and so I wanted to to sort of illuminate that as well.
0: Well Aaron doesn't spend a lot of time you know contemplating his misfortune Uh, throughout this novel he simply describes what is happening to him and his family without being sentimental about it and his voice is just so strong I mean from the very first page Was it hard for you to get that voice down and avoid giving him adult sensibilities?
1: Um, You know, you have to rein in your writerly narcissism, and it means that every so often an image occurs to you or a a way of seeing the world occurs to you that you think in your own um, narcissistic way is just a wonderfully insightful thing and, and you want to put it into your narrator's mouth and you have to remind yourself your narrator wouldn't be necessarily capable of this vocabulary. On the other hand, uh, as Henry James pointed out, you know children have uh, way more complicated feelings and perceptions than they have vocabulary to give them voice. And so you spend a lot of time registering that in fact, they do they are capable of almost everything, you want them to understand or say, you just have to find their language for it. And it's a little bit like Robert Frost's old uh, adage about, um, you know, uh, non-formal poetry is like playing tennis without a net. Um, There's a way in which when you're you're boxed into a child's vocabulary, you have to continually rework it to find the right way of saying a complicated thing. But it always turns out you can say a complicated thing. Because children have very complicated (laughs) feelings.
0: Well, you're known for doing lots of research on the topics that you write about. Can you give me just a sense of how much time you spent uh, researching before you started writing this book?
1: Uh, I probably spend, with a novel, I might spend uh, two years researching or something like that. But then I start um, writing before the research is finished, Um, partially because writers are such geniuses at procrastination that if... You say to somebody, I, uh, I have to research the Soviet Union before I can start writing. You're never going to start writing. Um, but partially too, because um, um, teaching, moving forward with a narrative will teach you what you need to know about research. So um, I did a story, for example, about a senior turbine engineer at Chernobyl. Um, and I learned all that was I could learn about senior turbine engineers and that night in Chernobyl and all of that. And I had my narrator say... Um, My name is X, and I was a senior turbine engineer at Chernobyl. And I was educated at, and I thought, where was he educated? And suddenly now I had to find out about Soviet secondary school systems. And nobody in their right mind wants to read about Soviet secondary. But but this is something that I didn't know I needed to know until I started writing. So um, the research goes for about... With a novel, it might go for a couple of years before I begin writing, but then it continues very much while I'm writing, um, and it continues after I'm writing as well because I'm always thinking there's more to find out, and I'm always thinking I better double-check on this or that or the other thing. And I'm also um, uh, always I'm, I'm interested in the world, so I'm always in, in coming back to those topics anyway.
0: Well, out of all the research you did, what proved to be the most valuable to your writing?
1: Probably, um, uh, speaking of the child's voices and and that, that um, non-sentimental um, willingness to just narrate all sorts of uh, good and bad stuff as uh, the way children sort of take things as they come, um, probably this collection of um, scholastic essays uh, that's been published in English, um, actually a number of them, um, that were... Um, Contests that the uh, Polish government ran to give scholarships out to students. And you um, c- could win a scholarship to university at any number of... Uh, a small one, but still a scholarship. At any number of levels of grades by writing your autobiography. So all of these rich and poor children who wanted to have a shot at school would write, you know, here's what my life has been like. And so you're getting that of 11-year-olds and 12-year-olds and 15-year-olds. And and, um, it was really a wonderful way of re-immersing yourself in that kind of, how do children deal with deprivation? How do children deal with uh, diminished uh, possibilities? Well, you know, they register it and they go on, you know, and and that was probably the most valuable uh, single aspect of the research.
0: As you mentioned when we first started talking, uh, the historical figure, Dr. Janusz Korchuk, he plays a big role in this novel. Did you feel any added pressure about writing about someone who is so well-known?
1: Oh, very much, yeah. And I wanted to do justice to that, obviously. But one, again, one of the ways in which I, I uh, restaged that problem for the reader was to say, well, this is an 11-year-old boy or a 9-year-old boy or a 10-year-old boy looking at him. Um, so this is what a ten-year-old boy, or nine-year-old, a perceptive boy, but a boy sees, essentially. And that let me off the hook for some of the comprehensiveness of it. You know, when you're writing about a figure who's really, really important to somebody, um, they not only want that whatever aspect you're writing about to be the version that they remember, they also want to learn something that they didn't know before, which means it's not exactly the version they remember. And they also have a demand for comprehensiveness. The first two, I'm more than willing to accede to. Like if I'm writing about Gandhi or Dorothy Day or Korchak or Martin Luther King, I want somebody who uh, those people uh, revere uh, to sort of say, yeah, that's the the person I remember, but I never knew that about him, that's wonderful. But I don't feel the need to uh, respond to somebody who says, well, yes, you did a wonderful job with Dr. King's March at Selma, but I didn't hear anything about his trip to Rome because I'm like, well, I'm not going to give you everything, right? And the and a, choosing a child is a wonderful way of doing that. If I choose Korczak himself, then the reader, I think, has more right to sort of say, well, it's odd that he hasn't brought up X, Y, and Z because I know those were important to him, right? Um, but even in a novel, this is a pretty short novel, even in a novel, one of the things you quickly realize is you're leaving most stuff out. And so then it becomes... Uh, the sort of lifeboat analogy right if you can only take six things which six are the most important as opposed to um are, you know are you are you taking all the valuable things no you have to leave some valuable things out
0: well what do you want people ultimately to take away from this novel or do you even think in those terms
1: I don't think in terms of uh, a thematic takeaway, right? I don't think in terms of people going, Mm, triumph of the human spirit, or, um, oh, yes, Jews had a rough time of it in World War II, right? What what fiction is trying to do, what literary fiction is trying to do, is is let you into another sensibility to sort of um, allow you to make this extraordinary empathetic leap, this leap of the empathetic imagination. And if you can really inhabit what it was like to be another person, especially another person in extremity um, you've made enormous political progress in some ways Um, just because you now have a a slightly wider empathetic imagination and that I hope will have some impact when you start hearing about suffering somewhere else Um, and that's one of the ways in which I think the arts educate us about our emotions but uh, in terms of thematic takeaway, no, I don't have a particular agenda in that regard
0: So what are you working on now?
1: I'm working on finishing a collection of stories which um, I had been working on when this novel interrupted them, actually. And um, the collection is probably far enough along that I only have one or two stories more to go, and I'm hoping to do those in the next um, year. And a story that I'm currently researching, and I never know with my research if a story's going to come out of it, is uh, about our miserable railroad infrastructure and how um, horribly dangerous... um, Um, The shipping of uh, dangerous materials is becoming in America. And so uh, I'm going to try and address that in some ways.
0: What was the first thing that you read that really resonated with you and really stayed with you and sort of made you say just wow?
1: Well, you know, I started out reading a lot of nonfiction. um, And so uh, a lot of my very, very earliest wows were I didn't realize the world was like that. And so books became a place where I could learn about the world. And my fiction sort of uh, reflects that, I think, in some ways. It's not just about the human heart, but it's also, oh, I didn't know this is the way dinosaurs operated or whatever. So that, there was that very, very early wow where I'd be like, wow, that's how volcanoes operate or that's how dinosaurs operate. And then as I began to get into um, literature at an older age, and the reason for that was nobody in my family had gone to college, so the books that were in my house, which my father had brought into the house, in, order, in, in the hopes that I would go to college, um, those were all nonfiction books. Like a lot of people from his generation um, and a lot of non-college educated people, he thought, well, if you're going to read, you might as well learn something. So he was uh, thinking, you, well, you get nonfiction; You don't want to read stories, right? So it was only much later that I started encountering literature. Um, and in that regard, uh, one of the things that was really important to me, one of the books that was really important to me was um, uh, Salinger's work, because somebody had given me a collection of Salinger, just as a gift, and I've been like, "Why am I getting this? This who would give anybody a book like this?" For but when I read it, um, I was sort of astonished at how much uh, that world and those voices could be considered literature, um, because that I hadn't really been given permission to write literature, right? Because the world I came from, I came from a you know, Bridgeport, Connecticut. Um, nobody I knew produced literature, so. The idea that 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 a bunch of people sitting around complaining could be uh, l- and it being funny could be literature was really eye-opening for me. And I remember thinking, and I think a lot of the writers I know are, are most empowered when they get to that moment when they say about a, something they're reading, "Oh, so you can do this? This is okay, you know." And that's most of the most of the uh, most important readings that people have are, the, are op- eye-opening in that way. I think.
0: If you couldn't read any new work, but you could only reread books you've read in the past, uh, and you could only
1: reread three books you've read in the past, but you could read those books as much as you want, Wow! which three would you choose? Uh, you know, we, all, we imagine all literature is inexhaustible, but some literature seem more inexhaustible than others. Um, I would probably choose um, collected stories, uh, since that would be a more varied array of worlds. Um, and in that case, I would choose um, Chekhov's collected stories probably and maybe Flannery O'Connor's collected stories. Um, but if I, had to, uh, if I was given the option, as you just gave me, for a third novel, a third book, one would probably be a novel. And the novel would probably be either uh, D. Lampedusa's The Leopard um, or um, Nabokov's Lolita, one or the other.
0: Well, what is your favorite novel to teach?
1: Oh, my favorite novel to teach? That's a very good question. Um, I do teach uh, Lolita periodically, and I love teaching that for um, any number of reasons. Um, That would be one. Um, uh, What what else would be? Um, uh, I also love teaching Memoirs of Hadrian, the Marguerite Yorsenar novel. Um, Those would probably be two of my favorites.
0: Why are they your favorite novels to teach?
1: Um, You know, the... uh, in the case of Yorsenar, it's the uh, extraordinary extent of her empathetic reach. I mean, it, it's, we think of these historical gaps as enormous, but to go all the way back to ancient Rome and uh, inhabit uh, somebody so fully from the inside is kind of an amazing achievement. Um, and in the case of um, Nabokov, the idea of um, both radically complicated game playing that could be in the service of real emotion, real tenderness, and real regret and real remorse. And also, um, um, the, the, the extent to which uh, a book like that can let you know that it's um, an artifact and move you enormously is really inspiring to me, I think.
0: Is there a writer who you think is not getting the attention that he or she deserves, either from readers or uh, from the media? Um, they're doing great work, but it's not being recognized.
1: Well, a lot of people are jumping on the Lucia Berlin bandwagon. You might have heard that earlier today, and and, um, there's a good reason for that, I think. um, There's also um, a a great groundswell of support for the previously neglected, but certainly no longer neglected, Elena Ferrante. Um, And if we wanted to name another writer I think um, is still neglected, I would name an Italian writer named Marta Morazzoni, who's a wonderful uh, historical novelist who nobody in America seems to know about, really.
0: Well, is there a book that maybe you've tried to read several times and you haven't been able to get through it? Uh, I'm thinking of a book maybe that most people who say consider themselves well-read have, have read and they maybe yeah. enjoy, but for you, it's just like there's a disconnect.
1: Well, I'm still attempting. Um, My Struggle, which is the um, was the sort of cause celeb of the last couple of years, Um and that book, it isn't so much that it's problematic for me in terms of my saying, "Oh, I don't like this," as much as it feels like such an undertaking because it's you know 95 volumes in it, and the idea that um, it's transforming this um, the minutiae of someone's life into literature is both appealing to me and also sort of off-putting because I'm sort of going, okay, well, I'm going to follow this person's entire life in great minutes. So it feels to me like one of those books that I do want to read and I occasionally take it up. And, I, and you've probably had this experience too. You take something up and you go, oh, I don't have time to do this. i got some, you know, I could see. And it just feels like such a, that I, you know, as if I said to you, you need to read all of um, Chaucer. And you think, well, I don't know if I have time tonight, you know, that kind of thing. So there's a way in which uh, I have been continually trying to take that up again and failing not so much because I'm not liking it, but because I keep psyching myself out about the amount of time it's going to take.
0: Okay. Well, lastly, what are you reading right now?
1: What am I reading right now? Um, Again, I'm usually reading nonfiction, and in this case, um, one of the books that Um, I've been engaged with recently is a book by um, Eric Schlosser called Command and Control, which is just about, uh, it's like about 500 pages of um, the nuclear accidents that our military has almost had and how um, narrowly we avoided them. And it's just sort of stunning um, reading because you find yourself going, are you kidding me? You know, over and over and over again, essentially.
0: Now, is that reading just for fun, or is that research?
1: Good question. Um, It's probably just for fun. I mean, I'm the sort of nerdy person who just wants to read stuff like this. Um, But every so often, it'll turn into a story, and I never can quite tell when that's going to happen. But in the meantime, I can say to myself, well, at least I get to read the weird stuff I want to read, right?
0: Jim Shepard, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: If you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. Also, check out readmorepodcast.com to find out how you can win a free signed copy of The Book of Aaron. You can follow us on Twitter at readmorepodcast, Podcast, and you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash readmorepodcast. Join us again in two weeks for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton, reminding you to read more.